Well, good morning and welcome everyone to church this morning. It's great to have you with us. Uh, My name is Jack uh, and I'm going to be opening up God's word with you this morning. Well, how are we to love our pastor and care for him? That's the question that we're going to be looking at this morning as we look at this list of qualifications that Paul gives to Timothy in 1 Timothy 3. It's an important question. I was struck by the importance of it uh, just the other day as I read an article uh, that an old Bible college lecture of mine wrote. Uh, And I want to quote to you uh, from uh, the first uh, little bit of that article. Uh, Dr. Pedor, he writes this, he said, and I quote, I was struck by a tweet I read recently by a Christian author. Said this, the quote, I've had 28 pastor friends resign this year. Almost all of them are transitioning to a new vocation. What is occurring? Pete Orr continues, that's just one tweet from the US, but it resonates with my experience. In my position as a lecturer in theological college, I know hundreds of men and women who have gone through college and are now in pastoral ministry, and many of those are struggling in some way or another. Some are at the point of quitting ministry altogether. He continues, there are, I suppose, myriad reasons for why people are leaving pastoral ministry. The challenges of the COVID pandemic and increasing cultural intolerance have made the issues more acute. However, tragically sometimes, the most intense pressure on pastors is caused by friendly fire, i.e. from people within their churches. In this article, I want to briefly think about how as Christians we might more intentionally love and support our senior pastors, and how we can encourage them them under God to keep going, unquote. And that's kind of what we're going to be looking at today, that last uh, little sentence, how we might more intentionally love and support our senior pastors, and how we can encourage them under God to keep going. Because, of course, here at Barney's, we've been touched by this uh, as well, particularly with our pastor having taken uh, some months off uh, for stress leave. And so we want to be thinking as a congregation, as his family, how can we be encouraging him under God? Uh, So let me pray uh, as we begin and we dive into 1 Timothy 3. Father, we want to thank you for your word. Your word is truth. We pray this morning as we read it that you would be bringing comfort to those who need comfort. You would be teaching those of us who need to be taught, that you'd be rebuking those uh, who need to be rebuked. And through all of it, you might be uh, helping us to see your son, Jesus, um, all the more clearly. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, this morning, Paul continues his letter to Timothy, a young pastor who is pastoring a fledgling church. And in this passage, we get to the nature of leadership. How should a church be properly ordered? And the key to this passage really is found in verses 14 and 15. If you've got your Bibles open, let's turn to that now. And here Paul gives his rationale for writing the section. Read with me 1 Timothy 3, 14 and 15. Although I hope to come to you soon, I am writing you these instructions so that If I am delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. Paul is writing this so that Timothy will know how to order the church. 
There's a couple of principles that we need to recognise as we begin to think about leadership and this ordering of the church. The first of these principles is this. Number one, a leader will shape the conduct and character of those they lead. A leader will shape the conduct and character of those they lead. It's fascinating that having just listed the qualifications of overseers and deacons, the leaders in a church, that Paul says, I'm writing this so that you will know how people ought to conduct themselves. The odd word there is people. You'd expect him really to say, I'm writing this so you will know how leaders ought to conduct themselves. But instead we get people. But this little word changes, makes an incredibly important point about leadership. There is always a relationship between the leader and the people that they lead. The conduct and character of the leader will shape the culture of the people they are leading. And this makes sense, doesn't it? We've all been in team environments, whether at work, sporting clubs, community groups, and you know what it's like to have a good or a bad leader. And you know the staggering impact that has on the culture of the team which means that it is incredibly important for us as the congregation, those, the ones being led, to pay attention at this point. This passage is not something just for the leader and the rest of us all tune out. No, the character and conduct of the pastor is bound up with us as the congregation. So we need to take it seriously. The second thing to point out is the reason why people need to conduct themselves well. Because this is really the key to understanding what is going on here. In this passage, Paul is concerned about the leaders and the people that they lead because, number two, God has entrusted his reputation with the church. God has entrusted his reputation with the church. Look at the way that he describes the church. He describes it in three different ways. Firstly, Paul says the church is God's household. Let me say it again slowly for you. The church is God's household. Let that sink in for a moment. We have been adopted into God's family, which means that we are God's household. Why does that matter? Well, think of the Queen of Australia, Liz II. Sorry, Ben, Elizabeth II. Well, Elizabeth II, she has a household. She is one woman and can't be everywhere. And so it is her household who represents her to the world, who acts on her behalf. Her reputation is entrusted to her household. That's why there's been such a kerfuffle about Harry and Meghan. But the point is this. Just as Queen Elizabeth has a household to represent her to the world, so God has a household to represent him to the world. And that household is the church. That household is you and me. Secondly, Paul describes the church as the church of the living God. Throughout the Bible, the living God is contrasted with idols. That is, there are dead gods, gods who don't do anything. But in the New Testament particularly, we are described as the temple of the living God, 2 Corinthians 6.16, or Ephesians 2.22, a dwelling in which God lives through his spirit. We are, right now, as we meet, in the presence of, of the living God. How are people in the world who are searching for God, and there are so many, to come in contact with him, 
people through the church. Because the church is the church of the living God. This is not just a community group. This is not just an event that we do amongst a myriad of others that is equivalent to playing sport or doing ballet or walking in creation. No, we encounter at church the living God. Thirdly, the church is the pillar and foundation of truth. We live in a post-truth world, in a world in which everyone is searching for truth, but nobody knows where to turn. Trust in institutions that have typically held truth for a society are at record lows. Trust for universities are low. Trust in the media is low. Trust in the government is low. Where are people to turn for the truth? Well, Paul says it is the church that is the pillar and foundation of truth. That is where people need to turn. But you might say, isn't trust in the church at an all-time low? Yes. But actually that illustrates precisely but tragically the point. It is the gross immorality in church leaders that has led to Christ being dishonoured and the truth of the gospel being obscured. What an unspeakable tragedy when this goes wrong. I think Dorothy L. Says, the great playwright and author, she gets it right when she says, Christ suffered three humiliations. The first in having to take on human form, the second in being beaten, abused and tortured on the cross, and the third in entrusting his reputation to the church. Three humiliations, three mysteries, and yet this is how God has chosen to work. But the point is this. God cares about the leadership of the church because it is his church and he has entrusted his reputation to the church. So, having understood 14 and 15 and the gravity of what is going on here, we can now go back to look at that list of qualifications through the lens of 14 and 15. And what is striking in these lists is that there is very little about competence. If you were writing a list of job qualifications for a pastor, I suspect, living in middle-class Australia, you would expect a CV listing academic achievements, past experience and specific competencies that need to be met. That's not what we get at all in this list, is it? What we also don't get is a picture of a Roman leader. Think of Julius Caesar or Augustus. Humility was not a virtue in the ancient world. A leader was to be proud and arrogant, possessing untold self-belief. Their power was in their capacity to do violence and to put down enemies. They were to amass money as a sign of success and they were to indulge in excess, including and especially sexually, in order to demonstrate their power. But we don't get that at all in this list either. What we get is a strikingly countercultural picture of leadership, unheard of in the ancient world, so rare in the modern world. What we get, I think, in this list is a picture of Jesus. Why? Because the church is Jesus' church. And so the leader must look like Jesus. And because the leader leads the people, the people will look like him. So what should a leader of God's people look like? Well, read with me verses 2 to 7. Now, the overseer is to be above reproach. Faithful to his wife, 
temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, the one non-character qualification there, not given to drunkenness, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him, and he must do so in a manner worthy of full respect. If anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become conceited and fall under the same judgment of the devil. He must also have a good reputation with outsiders so that he will not fall into disgrace and into the devil's trap. Almost all of this is about character. Let me just pick out a few. He is to be faithful to his wife, as Christ, I take it, is faithful to the church. And this in a world where the expectation was a man for a man to bear his heirs with his wife and then indulge his sexual pleasures on others. He is to be temperate and self-controlled, not violent, but gentle. He is not to be a lover of money, a man who cares for his family and invests deeply in them. A man who has a good reputation with outsiders, friends. I want you to see what a beautiful picture of leadership this is. And it is a beautiful picture because it is a picture of a man who is imitating Christ. A man who loves and knows Jesus and is striving in all his life to be more like him. That is the picture that is put in front of us. Brothers and sisters, what an astonishing. Astonishing joy it is that we have a pastor like this. A man who is not violent but gentle. A man who cares deeply for his family. You only need to walk down Queen Street to see Ben and Corrin's good reputation with almost everybody that they walk past. It's astonishing. A man who is trying to be like Jesus and a man who teaches us about Jesus in his words and actions. Because as I read out that list, I'm pretty sure none of us were thinking, yeah, he really does need to work on a few of those things, right? (laughs) No. We were all thinking, yeah, of course that's what a pastor should look like. Because that's what our experience of a pastor is. I can't tell you how glad I am to be able to preach this passage because I think it gives us an opportunity as a church to stop and to thank God for Ben and Corin. That God has given us leadership that matches up with 1 Timothy 3. And that's our first application for today. To stop and be so, so grateful for the gifts that God has given our church here at Barney's and in particular the gift of leadership. There's so much to be thankful for. And sometimes I just stop and think. I sit up the back and I think, how great is it to be here at Barney's? There is so much joy because as small as we are, as vulnerable as we are, and we are all those things, we have a pastor who is trying to be like Jesus. And we have a culture in this church where we are all trying to be like Jesus. How wonderful. And I'm laboring this point because let's not take it for granted because it is not true in so many churches. Either pastors who don't act like Jesus or churches who don't have a pastor at all. 
but we have both. God has done, God is doing, and God will do great things here at Bahani's. Well, in section, uh, in verses 8 to 13, uh, the section on deacons is similar. They are to be Christ-like. Also, the same logic underpins the deacon section as it does the overseer section, I think. Uh, And so we won't delve into that into detail because what I really want to do is I want to get to a particular question that is important for us to focus on and a question that is going to drive our application. We've seen that God has given his reputation to the church, that the pastor then is to be like Jesus, and he's to do this because there is a relationship between the leader and the people that they lead. The character and conduct of the pastor will shape the culture of the church. Here's the question I want to ask. What responsibility do we have as a congregation to our pastor? Are we to sit here idly in the cheap seats with our notebooks out grading him on his performance? Of course not. If there is a relationship between the pastor and the congregation, then it must go both ways. You see, if we want a leader like the one described in 1 Timothy 3, a pastor like this, we have a responsibility in that. Because I'm sure Ben is feeling it right now because the qualifications in 1 Timothy 3 are for him to be like Jesus. And I don't know if you've ever tried to be like Jesus. It's pretty hard, isn't it? And I know that Ben, like all of us, feel that frailty every single day. So what responsibility do we have as a congregation towards Ben? Well, much in every way. If we want a leader like 1 Timothy 3, we have a responsibility to ensure that Ben is like that, to get behind him, to encourage him, to be making sure that we are his biggest supporters. And not because of him, not because of us, but because this is God's church. And God has entrusted his reputation to the church. And so I want to get super practical at this point. I've got five application points for us to think about as we consider our responsibility to our pastor. And these come straight from the article I mentioned at the start. I'll send through the article itself uh, in the second bite later on in the week. But here's the first application point. Number one, fight for your pastor. And I don't mean physically, the man can look after himself. I mean spiritually. Do you struggle for Ben and his family in prayer? Because we are involved in a spiritual battle. Given the role that the pastor plays in the life of the church, the devil's attacks are going to focus on him. Peter writes this. Your pastor is under more intense satanic attack than anyone else you know. Satan wants to derail your pastor's faith, discourage him, and wreck his marriage and family. Unquote. What do we need to be doing? How do we engage in this spiritual warfare? We pray. If we want our leader to be like Christ, we need to pray for him. And not just generic prayers, but specific prayers. Prayers for his faith, prayers for his character, for his spiritual growth, his leadership, his marriage, his family. I want to say, as I've been prepping this, I've realized I'm not very good at this. I need to do better at this. 
In fact, one of the concrete things I've done is I've got a document that I do try and pray through ideally every day. I realized that Ben wasn't on there. So I got it out and I've inserted a prayer for Ben and his family in there. I'll send that prayer out as well uh, in that second bite uh, if you want to make use of that as well. So number one, fight for your pastor. Number two, encourage. We all need encouragement to keep going. That's a pretty basic human need, isn't it? But if it's true for everyone, it's especially true for a pastor under pressure to make sure that you do it. We've got some people in this congregation who are excellent at it. Cat White is excellent at this. I've been on the receiving end. Whenever he does something that you appreciate or are encouraged by, let him know. Give him the feedback. Send him a text or an email saying specifically what was helpful. It will spur him on and help him when he's discouraged to keep striving to be like Jesus. You know, sometimes as well, this will mean holding back criticism. Think twice before sending through criticism. Do you really need it or is this just a preference thing that you need to get over? And if you do, and I want to be be very clear, there will be times when you need to. If you've sent five encouragements previously, I promise you that your important criticism will be heard far more clearly and received in the love that it was attended if you've been encouraging him beforehand. If you're only sending criticism, that's not helpful. Let's encourage whenever we get the chance. Fight for your pastor, encourage him. Number three, give. And I mean financially. I know that this is an uncomfortable topic for Australians, but it doesn't matter. The Bible's pretty clear on this. The way that it works is that Ben has been set aside in order to serve us. And so how is he to live? How is he to support his family? Well, it comes directly from the congregation. No one else is giving him the money. Now, currently, we actually don't pay enough for him to, be, to have a full-time salary. We supplement using property trust, which means we're okay at the moment, but it's not necessarily a healthy way for us to go forward because his salary should be paid fully by the congregation. And I'd love for us as a church to get to that point and to have that as a goal where we are paying his full salary. Now, we're small. I get that, and that's fair enough. But it's worth everyone spending some time whenever you get to your budget this year to be thinking about how can I increase my giving so that our pastor is able to have access to a full-time salary if he chooses to use it. And you know what? That's one super practical way that we can help our pastor not be a lover of money. Did you notice that's in the qualifications? And you can be a lover of money by amassing lots and lots of money, but you can also be a lover of money when you don't have enough and that becomes a burden and an idol for you. By making sure that he has enough and he doesn't have to worry about it, we can stop him and help him not be a lover of money. The salary is not large. It's enough for him to live off. So if you haven't committed to giving, this is going to be a good time for you to start. Fight for your pastor. Encourage him. Give. Fourthly, submit. This, of course, is not a word that we like in Australia. We don't like putting ourselves under someone else's authority, and that's, yet that's what we're called to do. Hebrews 13, 17 says this, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls, as those who will have to give an account. Do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. If Ben is to be our pastor, our leader, then it is to our benefit. 
If he is to be like Christ and so create a culture in the church of Christ-likeness, then we need to let him lead. We need to be open to him, to let him speak into our lives and to do the job that he's been given to do. Now, I think actually here as a church, we do that pretty well. But it's good to hear the encouragement again, to keep submitting to him, keep opening up our lives so that he can speak into it. Fight, encourage, give, submit. And finally, number five, forgive because of the gospel. I missed a verse in the passage. Did you notice which one? I missed verse 16. Actually, I didn't. I was saving it for now. Verse 16 says this, Beyond all question, the mystery from which true godliness springs is great. He appeared in the flesh, was vindicated by the Spirit, was seen by angels, was preached among the nations, was believed on in the world, and was taken up in glory. What does this verse mean? True godliness springs from the gospel. How does Ben become more Christ-like? Well, he doesn't do it by working hard, by striving to be better every day so that maybe one day he'll fulfill those qualifications in 1 Timothy 3. No, he becomes more Christ-like by acknowledging his failings, confessing his sin, and kneeling humbly before the cross. And in doing so, he looks up towards his Saviour who came into the flesh, died on a cross, was risen from the dead, ascended into heaven, and will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead. Ben makes mistakes. He gets things wrong. He is a sinner the same as you and me. And so when that does inevitably happen, when he wrongs you, when he makes a mistake, when he comes to ask for your forgiveness, then praise God for the example that has been set before you. Praise God for a pastor who has understood the gospel and understands where true godliness comes from. And model him. Find out where you need to ask for forgiveness. Respond in kind with your heart full of joy that we are walking this road together. And remember, as we follow Ben, we follow Jesus. Let me pray for us now. Almighty Father, we thank you for the provision of our Pastor Ben and his family. Thank you that you have poured out your love and grace for him in Christ Jesus, saving him, redeeming him and sanctifying him. We pray that you would protect him and his family from the devil's schemes and all pressures and temptations in life. Give him all that he needs to be a husband and a father who models Jesus in all things. Grow him in faithfulness, in self-control, in gentleness. Give him a good reputation with outsiders and help him always to confess his sins willingly knowing that he is forgiven. And guard him and keep him as he leads our church. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.